Good morning. You know, there's some songs we sing that I go back and forth between wanting to sing them at the top of my voice and being so overwhelmed that I just can't sing anything. And that Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery is one that just always, there's such truth there that you just want to say it as loud as you can, and then you go to do it, and all of a sudden you just, you can't do it. Thanks to the worship team for consistently providing the music that not only uplifts us, but I'm sure is music to God's ears as well. When I was young, I belonged to an organization called the Boy Scouts of America. How many of you were scouts back in the day? Oh, quite a number of you. Okay. Well, you know that one of, the, one of the main things you do in scouting is earning merit badges. And if you're not familiar with scouting, you earn merit badges in different categories that have to do with outdoory type things. You can earn a merit badge for um, archery, canoeing, tying knots. There's, there's hundreds of merit badges. One of, the, one of the first merit badges that many scouts earn is the Wilderness Survival Merit Badge. And... Uh, there's several things you have to do to earn the Wilderness Survival Merit Badge. Some of them, uh, just as just coming out of the, the Boy Scout manual, use three different methods, other than matches, to build and light fires. So that's easy. Propane torch. <laughs> uh, improvise a natural shelter. I might try to do that in Frozen Chosen here in a couple of weeks. Explain how to protect yourself against bears. Some of the situations were more or less likely than others. The only thing I remember about bears is, if it's brown, lie down. If it's black, attack, because you might scare it off. They never told us what to do if the bear was white. Presumably, the Boy Scouts don't exist that far north. Now... When I was earning my Wilderness Survival Merit Badge, the Scoutmaster took us boys down to the lake and said, all right, boys, you might need at some point to improvise a personal flotation device. And uh, his method was ingenious, if not practical. The idea is, is that if you're caught in a body of water, you take off your pants. I'm not kidding. You guys know this. You take off your pants, you tie the pant legs together, you fill them with air, somehow, and then you cinch the top together with your belt, and in theory, this gives you an, an inflated like vest that you could wear around your neck, and it would keep you afloat in water. So I thought, okay, we're going to do this. Scoutmaster says, all right, boys, jump in the lake. So all of us, I don't know, there's probably a dozen teenage boys, we jump into the lake. Off with your pants, he says. Now, I had got wind that this was going to happen, so I was wearing swim trunks underneath my pants. <laughs> So we all take our pants off, tie them together, so I tie the legs together, fill them with air. How? <laughs> I'm blowing into this, completely ridiculous. I see one of my friends is like, whip him over his head and fill him up with air. It's, it's point. Eventually we just gave up. We cinched the top of the, the pants together with our belts, draped our sopping wet jeans around our necks, and we had done it. We had survived in the wilderness. I'm sorry if this story of 12 pantsless teenagers in the lake is disturbing to you, but 
That was my exposure to wilderness survival. And if we're ever caught in the wilderness, you know not to rely on me. <laughs> we're going to talk about wilderness survival today. The wilderness is our culture. Survival means maintaining our Christian faith, passing it on to the next generation, and remaining witnesses to Jesus in this world. A few weeks ago, Brian, you called us people of the book. I really, I really like that. My question is, how can the people of the book survive in this cultural wilderness? And hopefully, we're going to be a lot better prepared than I was as a Boy Scout. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please speak to us this morning from your word. Get me out of the way of myself and just use me as a channel of your spirit to apply your word to our ears. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's four aspects of wilderness survival we're going to talk about. That font is really small. I'm sorry about that. It looked bigger on my screen. I'll just read them to you if I can see them. First thing you do in wilderness survival, actually, first thing they teach you if you're, if you're caught in the wilderness and you don't know where you're at is stay calm and assess the situation. That's the first thing you do. Not build a fire, not run for the hills. Stay calm and assess the situation. Next thing you do is you locate and signal for search and rescue support. Third thing, stick together. Unless it's absolutely necessary, don't split up. And then expect the unexpected. There's actually a list of ten things we could talk about, but you don't, you don't want a two-hour sermon. We're just going to talk about four things. And this is going to be expect the unexpected. That just means... Uh, prepare for things to go wrong. You're going for a hike. Don't expect everything to work out the way you, you thought it was going to work out. So that's what wilderness survival looks like in, in a natural wilderness. In, in our context, wilderness, so, so get a clear picture of the culture. Stay calm and assess the situation. What's the picture of our culture? Two, search and rescue support. Well, that's got to be the Lord for us. Live in holy expectation of God. And that means understanding how God interacts with us and how we interact with God. Stick together. For us, this is going to look like building countercultural community. And finally, expect the unexpected. We're going to trust God for the trail ahead. Those are our four aspects this morning. Our text comes from the book of Daniel. Biblical account of Daniel, if you're not familiar with it, is... One of these extraordinary stories of faith that is lived out in the full glare of public life. It's about what happens to a group of people from a tiny little state called Judah in the Middle East when they are attacked and taken captive by who at that time was the most powerful ruler on the planet, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And Daniel and the other Hebrew children are brought into this Babylonian kingdom and somehow while like they rise to positions of authority and power in Babylon while maintaining a public witness of their God. So I'm really curious about how they're able to do this. And before we get into the text that we read this morning, we're going to set the stage by getting a sense of where they were at culturally. Where were they? And I think that's going to help us understand where we are at culturally. So if you have a Bible, go all the way back to Daniel chapter 1. 
Daniel chapter 1. Right at the very beginning, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. It's curious that Daniel chooses to mention these vessels from the house of God, these artifacts from the temple. Why are these things so important? He doesn't start off by listing like how the battle went or who the people were that got taken into captivity, but he does mention these artifacts from God's temple that Nebuchadnezzar takes and puts into his own treasury. I think these articles, these vessels of the house of God, are symbolic of a cultural tidal wave that Daniel and his companions were going to have to experience. The temple complex of Nebuchadnezzar, according to historians and archaeologists, apparently Nebuchadnezzar's palace was kind of like a modern-day museum where he would have on display all of these treasures from the different cultures that Nebuchadnezzar had conquered. And he would bring all these artifacts together and put them on display in multiple rooms across the palace. In fact, many of these same artifacts are still on display in museums in the world today which is about as close to time travel as you can get, to see these things that Nebuchadnezzar had in his temple, and we can, now, we can still see them today. So you can imagine that Daniel and his friends would surely have visited this temple complex. They would have gone to Nebuchadnezzar's museum, and they would have seen the artifacts from their temple, these beautiful vessels that were so... For Daniel, they would have been holy. They would have been set apart for the worship of God. They were like a, a, a tangible link with everything that he had known previously, with his God in Jerusalem and all that it stood for. The fact that these vessels were now in the temple of a pagan king is, according to John Lennox, a poignant reminder of the moral and spiritual catastrophe that had engulfed their homeland. It reminded them, it reminded Daniel and his companions, that their nation had lost a sense of the glory and holiness of God. In case you're wondering, this is the Oxford mathematician, John Lennox, who wrote this. I'm sure you wanted to know that. He's done some great work in, in group theory. So for those of us in the mathematical community, we... No. No, anyway, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Okay, that's right. Their nation had lost a sense of the glory of God. Daniel tells us these holy vessels were taken from the temple of God and put into Nebuchadnezzar's temple. And by doing this, Nebuchadnezzar actually tells us something about his own value system that the things of God were sort of on par with the relics of all his other conquered people. There was nothing special about them. They would have, uh, these, these vessels from the temple would have sat alongside artifacts from lots of other religions. No religion was, was special. They were all equal in Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. The God of the Jews was on the same level as the God of any other pagan religion. Each religion, each belief system was equally valuable or it was equally worthless. It was just one among many options. But the Babylonian culture itself was going through changes. And these vessels from the temple of God make another appearance a few chapters later. If you turn to chapter 5 of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5. 
But Nebuchadnezzar is long gone. A new king is on the throne, Belshazzar. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. By the way, when the text says that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father, it doesn't mean he was literally one generation removed. That apparently means that, sort of like George Washington was the father of the country, Belshazzar was, was sitting on the throne which had been held by the father, Nebuchadnezzar. There was a couple of generations in between here. That doesn't make any difference, but I thought that was interesting. Which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone." Somewhere between the reigns of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, there is a shift in how the culture viewed God. It could be said that in Nebuchadnezzar's time, the vessels of God were interesting historical items. They were on par with the artifacts of other world cultures and religions. But by the time of Belshazzar, the vessels from the temple of God had become special in a dark and dangerous way. When Belshazzar wanted to call forth vessels that he could mock, that he could denigrate, that he could defile, he did not call for some random assortment of religious artifacts from the temple. He specifically called for the vessels of Daniel's God. All of a sudden, the God of Israel wasn't one among many options. Daniel's God became the primary target of wicked men. So here we stand at the dawn of 2023. And the question is, where are we at culturally? Most of us grew up in a culture where the things of God were on par with any other religion. You could believe what you want. Believe in Jesus? It's a great option. Buddha? Mother Earth? Crystals? The Beatles? Believe, whatever, believe nothing at all. All, all belief systems were, were acceptable. This is, this is typical of postmodern society, where you are welcome to hold whatever beliefs you like or simply hold no beliefs at all. But my question is, are my children going to grow up in that same culture? Sure, in some places, depending on what communities you are in, Christianity is still definitely accepted as one of many options. But on the other hand, there are a growing number of Americans who not only reject what traditional Christianity considers good, they would call our beliefs evil. For some people, Christianity is a museum piece. Maybe it's an interesting part of our nation's history, but it's essentially irrelevant to modern life. Now, you can disagree about where we're at on that spectrum, but we're somewhere in between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. I also don't want to say that like, this assault on Christianity that we experience in our culture is something new. It feels new for some of us, but I think that's because we've lived in, an, in a very interesting time period in human history. I would argue that the norm is more like what we see in the New Testament. When uh, the Jewish leaders said to Jesus, or said of Jesus, if we let him go on like this, this is from John chapter 11, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe him. 
And the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. In other words, they were saying, the teachings of Jesus are very dangerous. We can't let his message get out. Or at the end of the Apostle Paul's life, when he is in Rome and some Jews in Rome come to him and they say, well, we've, we've heard about this sect, Christianity, and it is spoken against everywhere. Not just here and there, everywhere. Uh, we've heard about this Christian thing. Most people think it's bad. So this assault, cultural, you know, cultural assault on Christianity is, is not something that is new to us. This has been going on for a long time. But we're on that spectrum. We're somewhere in the cultural wilderness between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. So the second step in wilderness survival is determining where is our sense of help and rescue. For us, that means thinking about where God is. And this takes us to our passage today, which is in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel gets this, frankly, terrifying vision and is told some really interesting things. Picking this up in uh, verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you have set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. I have come because of your words. One thing that strikes you about reading the book of Daniel is that Daniel and his friends believe that God interacts with them on a personal and very powerful way. In fact, in pretty much every chapter, we see the people of God living as if God is directly intervening with his people. The Hebrew children do and say things that make no sense if God is some kind of hands-off creator who simply got the world going and now sits back and watches us, perhaps amused, solve our own problems. That is not the kind of God that the Hebrew children believe in. I know, Ecclesiastes says, what is that verse from Ecclesiastes? God is in heaven, and here you, you are here on earth, so let your words be few. It's a little bit harsh. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words. I understand that. But the Bible also makes it clear that God regularly makes his presence known, seen, and heard within the sphere of the earth. If this is new to you, this is what Christians believe. Not in some distant, remote God, but in a God who interacts with us and is closer than you may ever think. I mean, just think of some of the stories from the Old Testament. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evenings. Abraham keeps meeting God in surprising and spectacular ways. It's like he's just around the corner, and Abraham has another interaction with God. Jacob uh, sees a ladder between heaven and earth with angels going up and down. Moses discovers that he is, somehow Moses discovers he is suddenly standing on holy ground. Um, God leads the Israelites out of Egypt. As a, as a cloud or a pillar of fire by night. In fact, half the book of Exodus, pretty much half the book of Exodus, is given over to a description of this tabernacle, this place where God and his people will meet together. Evocatively, this place is called the tent of meeting. 
So despite the fact, so for Daniel, despite the fact that Jerusalem had been besieged, despite the fact that their temple had been looted and defiled, and that vessels of God had been placed in the temple of a pagan king, despite the fact that everything they had grown up with had been turned on its head, Daniel and his companions continued to humble themselves, expect God to intervene, and look for evidence of his hand at work. Here is uh, Shadrach, I'm sorry, I know the font is really small. I'll just read it to you. Here, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember the situation with the golden, the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and, and everybody's supposed to bow down? And here's the response from these guys. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Hey, but even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Later, we see King Darius. Darius makes this proclamation, right? Apparently, under Darius, you're allowed to pray to whoever you want. But then these, these advisors come to Darius and they say, hey, you should make a new rule. 30 days, people can only pray to you, Darius. So Daniel hears about this rule in Daniel chapter 6. Now then, Daniel learned about this decree that had been published, and what did he do? He went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. And what happens to Daniel? Well, he gets thrown into this den of lions. But even there, Daniel continues to live as if God is just going to intervene in this situation. Chapter 6, verse 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, so they have not heard me, because I was found innocent before him. These are not the words and deeds of people who are trying to navigate a cultural wilderness on their own. No, these are the people who believe that God is alive and at work in our world. We might not be able to see him, and he often does things that we don't expect. He often does things that doesn't do, he often doesn't do the things that I want him to do. But he lives among us. And we should be looking for evidences of his glory. Last week, Rick made a request for the uh, pastor's training program. This church had raised $10,000 toward our goal of $15,000 to support pastor's training program in uh, is it Sierra Leone. Yeah, Sierra Leone. Well, it just so happened. It just so happened. <laughs> Somebody in another state, I think it was North Carolina, Tennessee, is watching our service online and sent us $5,000 for the pastor's training program. God dwells among us. Maybe the greatest example of what some people call, some scholars call this the divine intersection. The divine intersection. That God, God's world and ours are complicated and connected. Maybe the greatest example of this is when God gave us himself. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. If you find yourself in the wilderness, you assess the situation. Where are you? Locate and signal for help and rescue. For us, that means we walk in obedience to Jesus. He made all things. He sustains all things. He rules over all things. And he reminds us that we are not alone. 
Our prayers are heard and God responds. Number three, we stick together. Verse 14, Daniel chapter 10. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Notice that Daniel is going to receive a vision that isn't just for himself. It's for his people. This vision is for your people in the future, for his community. In fact, if you look for it, community is kind of a theme of the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and the other Hebrew children resolve they're not going to give in and eat the food of the king. They're not going to eat the meat and the wine. They're going to live on this diet of vegetables and water and whatever else they're going to eat. But they do it together. They resolve to resist the temptations of Babylon together. I suspect, I don't know this, I suspect if Daniel had tried to do this, to take this position in isolation, that the temptation could have been overwhelming. Not just the temptation to eat the food, but the temptation to, 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 to be assimilated into the culture. So in wisdom, Daniel practices this faithfulness to the Lord in a pretty hostile environment alongside his Jewish brothers. So I would say if we are going to survive in our cultural wilderness, it is essential that we do not isolate ourselves. What we need is a band of brothers and sisters who are going to seek faithfulness to the Lord together. Which reminds me of one of my all-time favorite books, Life Together by Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer writes, a Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. This is why commitment to a local church is essential. We are a brotherhood established by Jesus. Now you say, oh, that sounds great. The church has its problems. I think we can say that. We all know that we're not always loyal. We're not always faithful. We're not always humble. We're not always encouraging. I have failed to be those things personally over the last couple of weeks in ways that I am not proud of. But Bonhoeffer knew that the church has its problems. He continues, struggles within the community are a gift of God's grace. What? Struggles within the community are a gift of God's grace because they force its members to reckon with the reality of their kinship despite their brokenness. A community that cannot face its faults and love each other through to healing is not truly Christian. This kind of community, folks, is radically countercultural. A group of people sharing life together in ways that allow our kinship to transcend our brokenness, what would that even look like? Rod Dreher wrote this book called The Benedict Option. I don't agree with everything in this book, but I just want to give you a couple of thoughts from it secede culturally from the mainstream. I know this sounds like monasticism. Dreyer is not talking about like forming some kind of an isolationist commune. Although I've thought from time to time that's not a bad idea, but he says, 
secede culturally from the mainstream, turn off the television, put the smartphones away, read books, play games, make music, feast with your neighbors. See, it's not enough to avoid what is bad in our culture. You have to embrace what is good. We are a minority now. So let's be a creative one, offering warm, light-filled alternatives to a world growing cold, dark, and dead. Warm, light-filled alternatives? That, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I want. And there's one group that especially needs warm, living, light-filled alternatives to what our culture offers, and that's our children. The elder team and Matt and Rick just spent a couple of days this past week on retreat, praying for, discussing, arguing about <laughs> the future of the church. I've been on a lot of these retreats. I've never come home from a retreat more physically exhausted than this last one. And I have never come home from a retreat more excited about the future of this church. I just, I'm just going to give you one glimpse into some of the things we talked about. Uh, I think Rick wrote this. This might have been a little off the cuff, so we reserve the right to change the wording on this. <laughs> but uh, Red Cedar Church is launching an all-hands-on-deck effort to become an attracting church home where K-12 students are prepared to navigate a post-Christian world with biblical wisdom and where those children receive a deep an abiding experience of community. Now, some of you are already waist-deep in this work. I was finishing this sermon during Sunday school. I'm sorry to say that. I was finishing this sermon during Sunday school downstairs. And uh, <laughs> that sounds awful, doesn't it? It's just, been, it's just been one of those weeks. And I was listening to all the different people teaching Sunday school. And some of the kids were singing, I'm in the Lord's Army. And some of them were playing some game. And they were reciting scripture. Some of you are already into this work. And that just encourages me. But let me just say this. Investing in the next generation is not just something that we're going to do, that ju not just something for people with kids. Single people, we need your ideas, your energy, your experiences, your perspective. Empty nesters, you just thought you were done with kids. If this church does not invest heavily in the next generation... I'm pretty sure there won't be a next generation at Red Cedar. I think it's that serious. The wilderness that we're in and what these kids are up against is serious. And this church is committed to doing what we can to pass our faith down to this next generation so that they can be witnesses, so that they can be lights to Jesus in this world. Last week, Rick shared a quote which has just haunted me ever since. Grant me the grace to walk in your ways, to cherish your friendship above the fellowship of the fallen, soul-shaped as I am by the company I keep, pressed and formed for good or for ill. We are soul-shaped by the communities we live in. Your kids' souls are shaped by the communities they are in, whether that's their school, their screens, their peers, sports, the media, youth ministry, you name it. Who is soul-shaping your kids? In fact, who is your community? Who is soul-shaping your marriage? 
Who is soul shaping yourself? Number four, final point, we trust God for the future. Daniel is given a fantastic and complicated vision of the future, which I am not going to talk about. It's all end time stuff, and we could have a lot more discussions on that. I just want to talk about his response to the vision. This vision that Daniel is given starts in chapter 10 and goes all the way to chapter 12. So turn ahead a couple pages to the end of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 8. Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. This is like me in class a lot of time. What? I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified and made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. Daniel saw the vision, and he didn't understand what God was going to do. He wanted to know. See, Daniel wanted the kind of inside knowledge that would help him to make sense of what was going on in the present and be prepared for the future. For Daniel, wisdom meant knowing what God was up to in every situation. And I just love God's response. Go your way, Daniel. Go your way, Daniel. The words are rolled up and sealed until the end is near. We might know where we're at culturally. Might have a good sense of it. We might know where God is and how to access him. We might even have tight-knit countercultural community. But there are always going to be things which we do not understand. It's as though God has written a masterpiece and we just get to see glimpses of it. Here's a true story. This is from the New York Times, so you know it must be true. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> this, this is a true story, though. On October 13th, 2005, a librarian at a seminary outside of Philadelphia was cleaning out a cabinet one hot July afternoon. It was a dusty and routine job, but there on the bottom shelf, she stumbled across what may be one of the most important musical discoveries in years. It was an incomplete manuscript for a never-before-heard piano concerto, and it looked like it could be from Beethoven. Musical scholars from around the world examined the manuscript carefully. They studied the furious scattering of notes across the page and the handwritten marginal comments, and at last there could be no doubt we had discovered a new masterpiece from Beethoven. Eventually, someone sat down to play it on the piano, and it was a difficult task. There are many changes and cross-outs, some so deep the paper is punctured. Groups of measures are vigorously canceled out with crosshatches. There are smudges where Beethoven appears to have wiped away ink while it was still wet. In some parts, the composer pays little heed to the spacing out of the notes in a measure, extending the staves with wobbly lines in his own hand. In one place, he has pasted an entire half-page over another with sealing wax. And the song itself was unusual. Some sections are sublimely beautiful. In others, high notes soar above the staff, only somewhat corresponding to the measures that had come before. Some places there's just a single line of melody. Some measures are just long rests with no notes at all. And eventually it dawned on everyone what they were looking at. The manuscript was only part of a larger work, featuring other instruments which could still be out there or could have only existed in the composer's mind. One expert said, figuring out what Beethoven was planning is really beyond our ability. 
The point is the masterpiece already exists in the mind of the composer. We see glimpses of his glory, measures of life which are beautiful, and then there's measures which don't make sense. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Well, that's great, you say. I know God's in control. I'm a Christian. I know God's in control of things. I know he's working things out, even when life doesn't make sense. When the world seems cold and cruel and confusing, I trust the character of God. But what about me? Does God really care about me personally? It would be a heck of a lot easier to navigate this wilderness if I knew more than just God's in control, but that God actually cares about me. Read that verse again from 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. God knows you. And that could be frightening. What does God know about you? Well, how did the Lord describe Daniel? Go back to Daniel 10. It's in the bulletin. Daniel 10, verse 11. He said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you. And by the way, in case Daniel doesn't get the message, he repeats it a few verses later. Verse 19, he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. O man greatly loved. He said, wow, that's Daniel. He was a superstar of the faith. Of course he was greatly loved. He was a model of faithfulness to God. No, 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 no. Every true Christian is, in a very real and deep sense, greatly beloved by God. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 60 years or 60 minutes. You are greatly beloved. Every son and daughter of the king is purchased with the same blood, written in the same book of life, called by the same spirit, and protected by the same divine power. Don Carson writes, God loves this broken, condemned world so much that he gives his son so that men and women might believe and be saved. That is spectacular, fathomless love. If you are a follower of Jesus, then God is at work in you. God's not just at work in the world generally. He is at work in your very soul. That's why we have hope. That's why we know our efforts are not going to be in vain because we are greatly beloved. Or Song of Solomon, chapter 2. My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. That's a promise for you. That's the end of the trail, folks. We'll be with the Lord, and we will all be together again. We'll all be together again. Anyway, I was looking for a sermon illustration. I was looking for a sermon illustration that would kind of tie it. You know, every pastor wants a good sermon illustration at the end. Something that ties the three points together, or whatever, four points together. I wanted something that uh, you would remember that's countercultural. 
something that illustrates how God's presence intersects with our world, something that we do as a community, and something that points to the conclusion of an unfinished masterpiece. And then I realized Jesus himself gave us this illustration. It's the Lord's Supper. The communion table is one of these mysterious places where heaven and earth intersect. It's like the tent of meeting in the Old Testament. There was a moment when God was subjected to human inspection, to trial, to torture, to death. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. It's our hope, by the way. It's not just my hope. Christ in power, resurrected, as we will be when he comes. We're going to do this ceremony together. Together, we're going to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That proclamation is going to become increasingly countercultural, increasingly radical, and increasingly important in the days to come. And the communion table is a promise that all stories will be fulfilled. That when Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, those stories are true. They remain true for all eternity. So as the worship team and the elders come forward, we're going to take a moment to pray silently. If you are not walking with Christ, this communion table is your chance to turn and repent. Don't stumble through this wilderness alone. God is nearer than you would think. Join your brothers and sisters in this church, in this city, across the nation. There's people around the world in this act of repentance and acceptance. And trust him for your path ahead. We're going to pray silently. And we're going to come down the middle, take the bread and cup, return to your seats, and together as a community, we will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray.